Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist of the show, actress, singer-director Valina Brown of the San Francisco Mind Troop. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Dominie Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Reforming the U.S. Senate. Filibusters, budget reconciliations, and gas bags. Mr. President, I wish to ask my distinguished colleague, has he one scrap of evidence to add now to the defense he did not give and could not give at that same hearing? I have no defense against forged papers. Committee ruled otherwise. The gentleman stands guilty as charged. And I believe I speak for every member when I say that no one cares to hear what a man of his condemned character has to say about any section of any legislation before this house. Mr. President, I stand guilty as framed because section 40 is graft. And I was ready to say so. I was ready to tell you that a certain man in my state, a Mr. James Taylor, wanted to put through this dam for his own profit. A man who controls a political machine and controls everything else worth controlling in my state. Yes, and a man even powerful enough to control congressmen, and I saw three of them in his room the day I went up to see him. The senator yield. Sir, I will not yield. A great scene from Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. This exchange between Jimmy Stewart and Claude Rains in the classic Capra film gives us insight into the United States Senate, ostensibly the world's greatest deliberative body. Right. But the Senate was originally meant to represent the states, not the people, and it took the progressive era at the beginning of the 20th century to even lead to direct election of senators. The unrepresentative Senate is still home to some oddball parliamentary tricks, including the nefarious filibuster and the hard-to-understand notion of budget reconciliation. What the fuck is that? Before we dig too deeply into the filibuster, let's remember that the Senate itself is far from a democratic institution. Each state gets two senators, regardless of population, which means that California, with nearly 40 million people, has the same number of senators as Wyoming, with about 600,000 people. That's not fair. (laughs) That's not fair. According to the Center for American Progress, that means that Wyoming voters have 68 times as much representation as Californians. Furthermore, the 21 least populous states, represented by Republican senators, have enough votes to sustain a filibuster, although they represent less than one quarter of the U.S. population. This isn't a democracy anymore. This means that a very small percentage of the population can elect enough senators to block the will of a much larger majority of Americans. Who built this system? Vladimir Putin? So now back to the filibuster, an odd rule that allows a minority of senators to hold up legislation almost indefinitely. 
thus making it harder for a full Congress to pass laws. For the minority, it's great, as they can prevent their opponents from passing bills they don't like and force them to negotiate changes, all with 41 votes out of 100. Getting your way with 41%? Now that's Senate democracy in action. It just doesn't add up. The filibuster actually goes all the way back to ancient Rome. What have the Romans ever done for us? Where one of the first and most distinguished practitioners of the art was the Roman senator Cato the Younger. Cato would obstruct a measure by speaking continuously until the sunset. As the Roman Senate had a rule requiring all business to conclude by dusk, Cato's long-winded speeches could forestall a vote. Tricky, no? But our illustrious, albeit rarely democratically-minded founding fathers actually did not include the filibuster in the Constitution. The Constitution stipulates that simple majority voting would be used to conduct business. Using the philosophy of, keep it simple, stupid, (laughs) it provides, for example, that a simple majority of each house constitutes a quorum to do business. In fact, Alexander Hamilton argued against protecting minority obstructionism in Federalist Paper Number 22, where he noted that supermajority requirements were one of the main problems with the previously unworkable Articles of Confederation, under which the newly independent states had chaotically bumbled along after independence. To give a minority a negative upon the majority, which is always the case where more than a majority is requisite to a decision, is to subject the sense of the greater number to that of the lesser. The necessity of unanimity in public bodies, or of something approaching it, has been founded upon a supposition that it would contribute to security. But its real operation is to embarrass the administration, to destroy the energy of the government, and to substitute the pleasure, caprice, or artifices of an insignificant, turbulent, or corrupt junto to the regular deliberations and decisions of a respectable majority. Thanks, Alexander Hamilton. Back then, you were writing logically to convince people to support the Constitution, well before you got a hip-hop musical named after you. The modern-day filibuster is largely the product of a supposed reform, which goes to show once again that the devious can always find a way to spin evil out of virtue. During World War I, before the United States had entered the war, a group of 11 senators filibustered a bill that would have armed American merchant ships to protect them from attacks by German U-boats. Soon thereafter, President Woodrow Wilson stated that the Senate of the United States is the only legislative body in the world which cannot act when its majority is ready for action. Let's do this. No. So the Senate changed the rules. Sort of. The new rules included what the senators termed a cloture motion, which allowed senators, by a vote of two-thirds of those present, to limit debate to one hour before proceeding to a majority vote on a bill. But sometimes it's hard to get two-thirds of politicians to agree to anything. Don't be so hard to get. And a willful minority can take up a lot of space and time. This was later changed to three-fifths, but still hard to muster. 
From that point on, during the rest of the Jim Crow era, the filibuster was used with great success by Southern segregationists to battle, stall, obfuscate, derail, and defeat civil rights legislation. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. All the while calling their beloved filibuster the soul of the Senate. The longest ever Senate filibuster was Strom Thurmond's unsuccessful but gloriously long-winded 24-hour and 18-minute methane-filled bloviation against the 1957 Civil Rights Bill. Yes, you heard that right. The old segregationist stayed on his feet for more than 24 hours making sure crabby white people could still drink from their own special drinking fountains below the Mason-Dixon line. Let's listen to imaginary Senator Beauregard Claghorn of the Fred Allen Radio Show paraphrase Thurman's charming Dixie perspective back in 1947. Fires from Washington. Since when do we have to import our apples from foreign places? Ah, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Born and bred in the South. But Mr. Claghorn, I have to get my apples from someplace and they grow up north. Then something's got to be done about it. Well, speaking in general, our grant. Don't ever mention that name in my presence. Oh, mean nothing. But what can we do, Mr. Claghorn? Eliminate the north. Make the whole country sound. That way we could call these apples southern spires. Hey, you. Claghorn's your name. Beauregard Claghorn, that is. Howdy. Now, son, in my plan, you simply move the Mason-Dixon line up around the Great Lake. Make Canada know. Mr. And after that, anyone who couldn't talk with a southern drawl would have to get a passport. Senator Claghorn may sound like a parody, but he represented reality back then. Joining South Carolina Senator Thurmond to filibuster the 1964 Civil Rights Act were an all-star team of Dixiecrats. Senators Richard Russell of Georgia, Robert Byrd of West Virginia, J. William Fulbright of Arkansas, and Sam Irvin of North Carolina. The South had risen again, thanks to the filibuster, and all in the service of stopping anti-lynching bills, bills prohibiting poll taxes, and discrimination in employment, housing, and voting. A reactionary use of a silly, short-sighted rule. One would think that modern America would be beyond these cynical parliamentary tactics. But Republicans made repeated use of the tactic during the Obama administration. In 2013, Harry Reid, then Senate Majority Leader, noted that the American people believed Congress was broken, (laughs) saying that over 230 years there had been 138 filibusters to stop nominations, with half being used during the first five years of the Obama administration. Reed and the Dems asked that the filibuster no longer be used to stop these nominations. In the Senate, this was called detonating the nuclear option. And Republican opposition leader Mitch McConnell noted that this would likely come back to haunt the Democratic Party and their legislative agenda. Unfortunately, he proved prescient. The Republicans took back the Senate, and in 2017, Moscow Mitch started pushing through Donald Trump's judicial nominees, including three Supreme Court nominees. Nuclear option? Owie! The problem with getting rid of the filibuster is that it can be used against you once you are out of power. 
So it is indeed a double-edged sword, especially in a country with such a stubborn reactionary minority like this one. And that means that a splintered group of senators, representing a very small population, can effectively rule the country on matters of majority consequence, like climate change, gun control, or a public option for health care, just to name a few. During the Obama administration, the House of Representatives passed the American Clean Energy and Security Act, which would have set new renewable fuel standards and established a cap-and-trade system for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That sounds like a very reasonable threat against my freedom. However, the proposal was never brought to a vote in the Senate. Then, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid knew why. He didn't have the required 60 votes to cut off debate. In the words of climate change journalist David Roberts, quote, Why did cap-and-trade fail? Because of filibuster abuse. That's the simplest and most directly causal answer, unquote. The same would be true of gun control legislation, which failed even after the slaughter of 26 children and teachers at Sandy Hook Elementary in Connecticut. Threat of the filibuster stopped the very popular idea of a public option for health care during the Obama push for the Affordable Care Act, which has provided health insurance to an additional 20 million Americans. Initially, however, the bill had been even more ambitious, including a government-run health plan similar to Medicare that would have been available to people who purchase insurance on the individual market. This proposed public option was a high priority for many Democrats, and polls showed it consistently to be one of the more popular elements of health care reform. I like it! In October of 2009, Senator Joseph Lieberman of insurance company Loaded Connecticut announced that he would oppose a bill containing a public option, which meant that there were not 60 votes to overcome a filibuster in the Senate. The public option was never actually filibustered because Senate Democrats opted to instead drop it from the bill in order to move forward a compromise proposal. I was a victim of the great compromise. Back in 1974, the Senate moved towards something that would supposedly move laws forward more quickly, budget reconciliation. According to political journalist Ezra Klein, budget reconciliation, quote, imposes a series of tests on bills and warps policy design by pushing away from regulation and toward direct spending and taxation. To use an example that is actually in the reconciliation package Democrats are designing now, you can pass $1,400 checks through budget reconciliation, but you cannot pass emergency paid leave. When Congress writes laws through budget reconciliation, it writes them with one arm tied behind its back. And Klein adds that budget reconciliation is kludgy, a term that comes out of the world of computer programming. where a kludge is an inelegant patch put in place to be backward compatible with the rest of a system, he wrote. When you add up enough kludges, you get a very complicated program, one that is hard to understand and subject to crashes. Kind of like Windows 95. But that seems to be how the Senate works. On the whole, the filibuster has been used roughly twice as much by Senate Republicans to prevent Democratic legislation from passing than Senate Democrats have used it to prevent Republican legislation. 
It is also important to note that a number of the conservative Senate majority's current priorities, including the confirmation of judges and cutting taxes for the wealthiest Americans, are not subject to the filibuster, meaning that a larger part of their agenda can be accomplished on a majority vote basis. And during the Trump administration's repeated efforts to repeal Obamacare, congressional Republicans attempted to utilize fast-track procedures in their failed effort to repeal the act so as to avoid a filibuster in the Senate. We can be certain that it had little to do with passing progressive legislation. Does the Senate have a future in a real democracy? Harry Reid's former Senate staffer, Adam Gentleson, describes a typical day of speechifying from the Senate floor in his upcoming book, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. If you're lucky enough to catch a speech on the Senate floor, the senator giving it will probably be reading prepared remarks which they'll be seen for the first time as they read them aloud. The chamber they're speaking to will probably be mostly empty. If other senators are present, they won't be paying attention to the speaker. Whatever the senator's speech was about, it almost certainly will have no impact on the bill notionally under discussion and change no minds. The negotiations between the leaders will take place behind closed doors. Far from public view. In an ironic twist, the senator stealthily filibustering the bill will inevitably be doing so in the name of unlimited debate, invoking grand principle to justify naked obstruction. Put some clothes on. Despite the fact that nothing bearing even a passing resemblance to debate will be taking place. Sheesh! The Senate has become the graveyard for much progressive legislation, especially in the past few decades. The place that was once home to progressive senators like Robert La Follette, Hubert Humphrey, and Ted Kennedy is now skulked by the likes of Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and Josh Hawley. There is much to reform, but getting rid of the filibuster and reforming budget reconciliation are good places to start. In a time of national emergency, getting things done and reforming the status quo does seem to be of the essence. If the filibuster and budget reconciliation are there to maintain a rigidified status quo, then perhaps they deserve to finally be buried. Bad relics from a nefarious and weasel-filled history. In the spirit of how can you miss them when they won't go away, let's conclude with more from mythical Senator Beauregard Claghorn. The Senator's home. I'll knock and see what happens. Somebody, I say, somebody knocks. Yes, I know. Claghorn's the name, Senator Claghorn, I that is. I know you're from the South. When I'm in New York, I'll never go to the Yankee Stadium. Now, wait a minute. I won't even go to see the Giants unless the South Pole pitches. Well, look. I refuse to watch the Dodgers unless Dixie Walker's playing. Now, wait a minute. Stop interrupting. Where's your manners? Manners, I have no... Uh, try listening. You might learn something. Listen, all I'll ever learn. Your tongue's wagging like a blind dog's tail in a meat market. <laughs> You're winded, hey? (laughs) Just sucking in some air, son. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you.
here with Valina Brown. Valina, a longtime actor, actress, director, singer, acting coach, and teacher, and member of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. We welcome you to Snap Sessions, Valina. Thank you so much for having me. You grew up as an Army brat, and uh, you came to San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about this upbringing and how you ended up in the city by the bay. Well, yeah, my dad was a career army officer. And so we moved around a fair amount. By the time I was nine, we'd moved nine times. And then, you know, then it kind of slowed down a little bit and that we were in Maryland for five years because he was stationed at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And then we, and then from there, we moved out to uh, the Presidio and then he retired out here. So we just stayed out here. So I I arrived by the time I was 14. But at that point, I lived a lot of places. My sister was born in Germany. And, you know, this background is is very common, actually, for, for actors. A lot of actors have had that experience of, in their young upbringing, you know, having to move and adapt and observe different places and try to learn about the people there. And so by the time they're adults, they know that there are a lot of different ways to do things. You know, there's just a lot of different ways of being and and choices that can be made compared to someone who has never left their hometown. Just that that vision of the world that is required of you as a young person to just try to navigate you also become kind of adept at character study in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see all these different people in all these different places. I mean, I imagine that was part of your early upbringing and seeing people in different guises and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Different accents and stuff or in, end up in your ear and that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. I know. I also read you were interested in music early on and you play instruments. You play French horn. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you still if you still do any French horn. No, I don't still play the French horn. And Michael tells us that you guys were also in the choir together in high school. Mm-hmm. Did you want to be a singer early on? Did you imagine yourself in musicals? What are some of the ways you got involved in, um, in music? Well, I just naturally sang all the time. My dad sang around the house all the time. He had a beautiful voice and just naturally um, enjoying singing. You know, when I first got interested in and knew that I was interested in musical theater was seeing my dad when we were stationed in Fort McClellan, Alabama, there was a little theater on the post and they just did with the uh, army band, uh, a production of guys and dolls. And he played nicely, nicely Johnson. (laughs) And it was just really fun. I mean, I was six at the time and I just, they had me at the overture. I mean, Guys and Dolls has an incredible overture and it's one of the great American musicals. I was just like, oh my, you know, and I whispered to my mom that I want to do this, you know, (laughs) and I didn't, I didn't know what that meant in terms of, you know, like for my life, I don't, she would, I, that little girl was not imagining being with the mime troupe for 28 years, but I just knew that that looked like fun. So that was kind of the, definitely the opening of my mind to musical theater. Yeah. But, but Michael and I, just in terms of like, we were in choir together, but we actually met, he, his family had moved up from LA and my family moved across the country and we somehow or another, we ended up at the same school and we met in band class. So he was a percussionist and I played the French horn and the French horn set section sat right in front of 
the percussionists. So. Oh, so that was proximity. That's, that's proximity it. led to uh, other things then. <laughs> well, I just thought he was really cute, but we actually didn't start dating until college, but we met in the ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And then through um, high school, we were friends. So we continued to be in band and then we were in choir. And then he started a choir that we, we continued to do from maybe the age of 18 to 28 or something. We did a long time. The One of the things that jumped out at me about your CV was that you ended up going to college and getting a master's in counseling. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your, your university education and uh, some of your interests that led you perhaps away from a while before you went back to theater. Actually, I, I did both. You know, I actually have been an actor for all of my adult life. Like I said, I fell in love with it when I was six. And then by junior high, I got to do it. Um, but I also became very interested in psychology in high school. We had a really good psychology class, at, which is unusual in a way because I don't know that many high schools have psychology classes, but mine did. And I just got really, really interested in learning more about human behavior and why people are the way that they are. Just always been really curious about that. And that fits really hand in glove with being an actor. Um, It's just a, you know, like another angle on the same thing. So when I went to college, It was like, I knew that I wanted to major in psychology, which I did, but I started off as a music major because I'd got received a vocal scholarship and you had to be a music major and you had to declare that you were a music major in order to get that scholarship. So, you know, I was still doing it parallel. So I was in the performing, the the recording and touring choir at state and me and just one other girl were the first freshmen to be allowed into that particular choir. And uh, so I was doing that, but I was studying psychology. And my plan was that I was gonna be doing both. My vision was that I was gonna have a private practice and that that it would be a part-time private practice and I'd have like a little shingle out where I lived. So in my imagination, there would be two entrances to where I live. So the the entrance to the home area and then the entrance to the office. And uh, so I would see clients during the day and I would do theater at night. (laughs) That's how how I pictured it. So I, I just continued to be very much into it and got my BA and got into grad school. And I was doing theater at the same time that I was in grad school. So it was totally parallel. And then by the time I got to the end of school, that degree, then um, I just decided to keep going with the acting. But I just learned so much in the process, you know, that it's very valuable to me that that training. Presumably, you don't have any regrets about not having that shingle out, that uh, counseling shingle. Um, No, no, I don't. You know, actually building a career as a performing artist takes up a lot of time. And here's the other thing though. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it's not possible. There, there's there's somebody out there doing it. But I think at one point while, while I was in grad school and I really started trying to visualize how to make those two happen, because it was sort of an issue already because I had two different internships while I was in school. And that question of well, what if a client sees me on television or sees me on stage doing something that it could mess up the therapeutic relationship? It could really create issues or something like that. And I hadn't thought about that when I first, when I was in high school going, well, this is how I'll do both of them, you know, but, but that situation of having someone 
sort of see you a certain way, or if you think Freudian in terms of like the transference, and then all of a sudden you're, you're playing a character that's not like you at all. And it's not who they thought you were. I mean, it could be an issue. So I don't know. I don't know exactly how people deal with that who do juggle both, but I would imagine it would be something you'd have to keep dealing with in the the therapeutic relationship. Now you had continued acting. Um, and I think in the early nineties, you became involved with the SF mime troupe. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you get in there and what were some of your first roles? Well, my first role was, uh, I was a replacement actor for a fall tour. So, um, the show, a show called social work, Amara Tabor had been playing the character uh, opposite Michael in the show. She's a dancer. She's a great artist. Um, and just kept going with dance. But she didn't want to go on tour that fall in the role that she had helped create over the summer. So I got the opportunity to do that and um, went on tour with the troupe with that show. That was the fall of 92. And then the summer of 93, they already like knew what they were going to do. I think that was offshore and who was going to be in it or whatever. So I didn't do the show in 93. My first time getting to create a role as opposed to being a replacement was in 94 in a show called Escape to Siberia. Now you've literally at this point, you've been pretty steadily involved with the troupe since that time. And Mm -hmm. you've literally done dozens of shows Mm -hmm. uh, as Michael has. You guys have been, you know, heart of the batting order there with the SF Mime Troupe Mm -hmm. for those years. Tell us uh, three or four of your favorite shows or favorite roles. Well, um, I, I've really enjoyed so many of the, the shows and and there are so many at this point, which is another way of saying you're just kind of old. Um, but uh, <laughs> but let's see, eating it I think mm-hmm. was a lot of fun to do. Sixteen hundred Transylvania Avenue remains one of my very favorite shows. What was uh, your part in that one? Was it that Shamina? Yeah, I was Shamina. I was the uh, inventor at that time. It was so so long ago that it was kind of a thing. The idea, and in fact, I think Ellen Callis came up with the idea of the device that's basically like TiVo now. You know, that just when you're watching television, it it um, cuts off the commercials so that you can just watch the show without being interrupted by the commercials. Yeah, you know, that Ellen should have gone into inventing. Uh I mean, what a brilliant invention. (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) But the idea was really about the the law uh, that says that corporations are people. And so, therefore, people who are running corporations can do all kinds of things and not be in trouble personally, it's like, I didn't do it, the corporation did it. And so even if that is, you know, they've done things that have broken the law, it's like the individuals who made those decisions can't be prosecuted because the corporation is a person. And then of course the corporation isn't gonna go to prison. You know, I've never understood that one. And I thought kids went, give me that back. You know, I want that as a give me back. Can we go back and redefine that? Yeah. But anyway, this particular Mm -hmm. show deals with that. So Shamina was a big role. So that show, um, when I talked to Michael, he said that that show ended up being one of the most popular shows in Mime Troop history. Uh, I think so. Yeah. And so you toured all over the place with that one, right? I feel like we toured more with eating it 
because there were lots of, of activist organizations around the country that were struggling against genetically modified food going, you know, getting into our food chain, you, you know, like the altered seeds and the pollen from those seeds can blow into non-GMO uh, fields and contaminate them. So that, that was definitely an issue that a lot of organizations around the country wanted to have us come out and help. Right. And, you know, like that's the thing about our shows is that, that activists can use it as an organizing tool because it's, it's really fun. It's funny. It's, you know, there's music, it's, there's all this action, but there's information that's coming out through the story um, that really helps people get the idea of what the concern is, you know, more so than a paper or a speech or something like that. So if people come see our show and then the organizers can go, all right, now you get the idea. Do you want to be involved with, um, you know, struggling against this? What role did you play in eating it? I was actually another uh, inventor uh, in that Michael and I played this scientist couple who had come up with a super corn. And my character, Cynthia, uh, was spelled like synthetic, that kind of Cynthia. <laughs> my character really just wanted to find a way to, to feed the world, that there's so much hunger and suffering in, in the world with food shortage and, and insecurity and, you know, situations where there can be pests or drought or something like that that can decimate the food supply, that if they come up with this super corn that can resist all of those kinds of issues, then it'll feed the world. So that's where she's coming from. Michael's character, who is playing my husband, once we get approached with the opportunity to rush it to the market without really studying it properly and making millions or billions of dollars, that's what he was interested in. And so all this, that, that sort of splits apart the couple in that he goes ahead uh, and rushes it out to the market. And of course, it, it decimates the planet. So when we meet him, everything's dead except for him and his daughter that are living in this bubble. And so now he's trying to make a time machine so that he can go back, intercept that version of him and make a different choice because Cynthia's dead, everything's dead because of greed. It strikes me that you cannot go to a mime troupe show and go, I'm going to park my brain for the afternoon. No. I'm just going to show up and lay on my ass. <laughs> you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You guys make people think. And that's one of the real glories of the mime troupe. Typically a mime troupe show, you see it in a park. It's maybe a sunny, sunny afternoon in Berkeley or down the peninsula or San Francisco. Mm -hmm. You see a big show, big crowd. You're all hanging out and watching it. It's just lovely. But you're making people think it the whole time. And these two characters you mentioned are those kind of people. How about another one? Can I pick your brain for another show or two that you really had fun in, that you had memorable characters for you? Well, um, I had a lot of fun doing Too Big to Fail, which was after the crash that happened. Well, there have been, you know, capitalism keeps crashing. The 2008 crash and so we were really examining that, that whole idea of, again, corporations and things getting so big that they can't be allowed to fail, yet individual people, families, small businesses are allowed to fail, are allowed to lose all of their life savings 
in this endeavor where people who, if they know things are about to crash, so they pull their money out and everybody else is left to go down the drain. And just the idea of credit, people feeling like in our culture, I I hesitate to call it a culture, whatever you call this is that we live in, that really just makes luxuries the most important thing. And then the things that are the most key, essential, if you will, to existence, those things are relegated to not important. And the things that are totally frills get elevated to this is something you've got to you if you have a house you got to mortgage your house for this or if you have that you you know you need to keep up with the joneses and people end up in big trouble trying to do that that was a fun odyssey kind of story what part did you play in too big to fail i played a character named geneva we played this couple and we get married and and then he decides we have a goat you know, it's like it's like a, it's set as a, an African storytelling style. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's the that's a big difference here. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. And so we uh, as part of the dowry for our marital union, we have this goat and then he decides to uh, risk the goat to to get some more money. And it's set up in a way that he's not going to be able to pay it back. It's not, it's going to be impossible for him to pay it back and he loses the goat. So he goes on this odyssey to get it back. And in the meantime, encounters all of these different characters and different aspects of the system. Michael was, played the storyteller. So he keeps coming out and telling these tales that are very funny, but they're horrifying at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. um, yeah. So, hey, so one of those names, a griot or something like mm-hmm, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's one of that storyteller in West Africa. Yeah. You have done a series of really yeah. fun at the same time, enlightening uh, roles with the troupe. You've also been doing all kinds of other stuff, stage acting. You've been been some television and movie roles. Some of the TV shows, Nash Bridges, Party of Five. You're a, you're a working actor. You're also a working director and you do lots of regular stage work. Mm-hmm. What's it like acting in TV and films compared to, you know, stage performances? Well, you know, there's the aspect of acting that is the same, you know, which is the work inside in terms of creating that character and um, answering those basic questions, you know, who am I? What do I want? What am I willing to do to get it? That's the same regardless. But technically, there are some differences in terms of when you're working live in a theater or like when we work outdoors in the mime troupe, even more so, you're having to throw your performance far away from you as a physical performing artist that's where you have to have technique vocally you need to have really strong clear facial expressions body language that sort of thing and then the staging of it needs to be very sharp and crisp you know so that it's easy to read what's happening from far away whereas when you're doing something on camera the camera can come right up your nose you know like it could just be right there and so you don't make as big expressions and gestures because it'll be too much that could even be happening right now because I gesture a lot with my hands and I'm on camera and it could be could she put her hands down I like watching it it's probably going to be lost on the audio audience but at the same time just so you know out there 
Valina is all <laughs> over. She's moving around. Yeah. So that's so that's a that's a difference in terms of um, technique. If you were say you're on the big screen in particular, when your face can be thirty feet tall or something, then just raising your eyebrow is a big deal. So you don't need to be doing as much because the camera's picking everything up. Another thing is that just the experience of doing it when you let's say particularly say you're doing comedy. When you are in front of an audience, you get that immediate feedback that if, you know, whether you get the laugh or not, right? But if you're doing something for the camera, it's like there's no audience. So you have the camera person, the director, like whatever the crew that there's sort of like the ring of people, that spot that's been lit where it's going to happen. And it needs to be perfectly quiet. So even if they think it's funny, they can't laugh. They're going to ruin the take. So you have to know inside what's funny and what's not. And you have to even more so have timing, rhythm, understanding what makes something funny and have the confidence in that because you can't depend on the audience to tell you that. Like you have to feel like you know and do it that way. So there's that. So you're not going to have the laughter to tell you, aha, I got my laugh. That was funny. But also the differences are once you're on stage, like once a show is open, it's an actor's medium. The curtain goes up, the show begins. There's no stop, start, whatever. It is in the hands uh, of, of those performers, how the show is going to go, that performance. Whereas something that's recorded in editing, it's an editor's medium. The editor determines what's in, what's out. For a variety of reasons, they can choose a take that you don't feel like was your best take. But for reasons that for the overall picture of what they're going for, they put the piece together how they see it. And so it's definitely much more of an editor and director. If the director's sitting right next to the editor, it's their medium, not the performers. Well, speaking of directing, uh, you've done directing both for the for the troupe, right? Didn't you recently direct Tales of the Resistance? I did. I directed mm -hmm. that 10-part that series. But that was my first time directing the uh, the summer project you know i just have been acting in in many shows for a quarter of a century um <laughs> but in terms of directing a mime troupe show main stage show i had not done that before and uh so i raised my hand to to do that and then it turned out that we weren't going to do a regular show and that we were going to be doing something that none of us had done before and so so that was really an interesting turn of, of events, but I really in, enjoyed directing the series. Yeah. You ended up directing a 10 part radio series, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually very impressive. I, I am recommending again, uh, listen to tales of the resistance, which is the mime troupe. They are wonderful contemporary radio plays, uh, full of politics, very funny, completely ridiculous, but in a good way and also educational. So I recommend that. Getting back to the directing point, too, you've directed for lots of other companies. I see here Lilith Theater Company, Cal State East Bay, African-American Shakespeare. Tell us about some of your bigger directing roles and how you approach it. Like, What makes it exciting for you? What's exciting for me is that, okay, so there's pressure, but it's also fun. If you, you know, if you like being, <laughs> as W. Bush would say, the decider, if you like <laughs> to be the decider, then 
it's 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 fun and and I didn't feel like I was um you know kind of naturally the decider person in a way um like whereas Michael is just naturally very bossy and so um he you know and he's got a ton of ideas and his mind works very fast and you know that sort of thing whereas it, you know it took a while for me to feel i guess you know just feeling confident to do it once you get going with that and i mean I re- the recent example of directing those those 10 episodes um, I had a lot of deciding to do for every, <laughs> everything, you know, all the different takes and all that sort of thing and how we were going to, the timing of things. And uh, I need, I need that to stop there. You know, that'll be funny. Um, you know, that sort of thing that you're doing in the middle of the night, you know, with Taylor Gonzalez, who is our sound person, designer and technician. So then when we went into doing a Red Carol, which is a worker oriented adaptation of A Christmas Carol, Michael directed that. And so I had been directing from the summer all the way through the fall. And I was used to having my opinions and saying, this is what I want. And then going into a thing where now he's directing, it was like, wow, you know, now it's been like six months of, of it being uh, me being the decider. So it was, it was a little bit of a, of a shift in mindset, like, okay, the lane that you're in is much, is smaller as the actor. One role, as opposed to the director, who's looking at all of the roles and all of the elements of the piece, you know. It sounds like you like directing a lot. It sounds like you like getting your head around all those things at once. I've come to like it a lot. I think that at least, you know, this, this experience was really fun. And also, like, when I directed... Cinderella. I directed Cinderella and also I co-directed, there was a team of us that directed The Colored Museum. But when I did Cinderella, when L. Peter Callender initially asked me to meet with him and talk about the possibility of my directing that, I thought, I'm a feminist. Uh, Why do I want to do this thing, you know, these fairy tales or whatever, where the the guy is rescuing the woman? And I, I had to think to myself, like, why would I do this. But then I thought about the fact that the story is over a thousand years old. There's some version of the Cinderella story in every culture. Some of them, it's like silver slippers. Some of them, it's little fur boots. It's like all different kinds of cultural renditions of Cinderella. And then when I, when I thought about the fact that, okay, this is an opportunity to talk about some things. So African-American shakes, they had their adaptation that they had done. They'd been doing it for several years before I did it as their annual like holiday thing. And it was very popular already. But one of the ways that they had been doing it was to have like the stepmother and the stepsisters be played by men in dresses. And it was sort of like this ongoing joke was that you know, they're the ugly, the ugly stepmother and the ugly stepsisters. And that it's like, they're so funny. They look like men. I mean, they're so ugly. They look like men in dresses. Ha ha ha. And so for me, I just felt like, okay, I don't want to do that. If I'm directing, I don't want to, I don't want to do it that way. It was just an opportunity to, to talk about some things. Like I wanted them to be physically very attractive and that it wasn't about how they looked physically but pretty is as pretty does. And because they're so horrible to Cinderella and they're so fake with the prince, that that's what makes them unattractive, not that they look like men in dresses, for example. And I wanted to have Cinderella have natural hair. 
I didn't want the transition for her to be, you know, that when she supposedly looks beautiful, more beautiful, it's when her hair is oppressed kind of thing. I wanted her to have kinky hair. So that's the thing about directing too, is it gives you an opportunity to talk about some things with the choices that you make. Oh, you also directed Michael mm-hmm. in uh, his Huey Newton show. He did his own. Did anyone ever tell you you look like Huey P. Mm-hmm. Newton? He wrote this because he gets he got teased. We talked a bit a bit about this in his interview. Mm-hmm. He got teased a lot during his life about looking like the great Black Panther, Huey P. Newton. Mm-hmm. Now, how was it directing your husband? I know you've done this a lot back and forth with the Mime Troupe, but this is such a singular production, you know, a one-man show. Well, um, at that point, I had taken a directing class through Bravo for Women in the Arts, and they were wanting to create more training for women to be directors. And so I, I ha- my final project for that, and then I directed a woman... Uh, Anita Johnson in her one person show. And I think that was all I had directed at that point when he asked me about directing him. And I said, look, you know, I, I don't know if I'm the right person for this. I don't know if I have enough experience for this. I don't, you know, like I was kind of reticent in a way, but he really wanted to have me do it. And And the thing is, is that when Michael writes, he's thinking as an actor and he's through the characters and he's also thinking as a director in terms of like the staging and that so he's seeing all that in his mind anyway the main thing that he was really counting on me for was really the the emotional journey of the story and so he he felt like he really trusted me to help him with that and it's like okay as long as that's the main focus i do feel confident in that yeah it was one of the first one of the very early things that i directed but you know once it was clear why he really wanted me and then it was like okay yeah and that was really fun to work with him on that it was interesting talking with him and he said that he's also since then gotten to know some of the members of the Huey Newton's family mm-hmm. And I, I guess you guys, he said he'd been to, but I'm presuming you guys went to some family functions even. Some of his family came out and saw the show. Huey's um, brother and his wife saw Barbarette Newton, um, who uh, passed away a couple of years ago. They came to see the show and they really, they were like, oh my gosh, he really does look like him, you know? <laughs> and, and so there was something about, because at that point, they hadn't seen live Huey in a long time. And then they feel like they're, they're sort of seeing this person who really, to them, really did look like him. And so they just very much, uh, they loved the show and they fell in love with Michael. We were honored to get to know them better. And Barbarette, when she was alive, you know, when we we're in the parks, people make lunch for us because we come load in whatever. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of hours of work setting up and striking for this yes. hour and 15 minute show. Uh, the day can be 10 hours long. People come and make lunch. And she, when she would do it for several years, she made the most incredible spread for us. And uh, it was just really fun to, to have that opportunity to get to know them. 
you know, through that show. You know, it's one of the great things I think about the troupe has kind of an extended family, not just activists, but people who love theater around the Bay Area, NorCal, and across the country and the world, actually. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the world, I wanted to change the subject a little bit to another of your talents, and that's your singing. I've seen you sing in multiple uh, mime troupe shows. And as I mentioned before, you have a boomer of a voice. But I was surprised when I got to discover on your website, uh, seeing the album you put out for those who came after Songs of Resistance from the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. And you sing with a band, I think they're called Barbez. Mm -hmm. listened to the album you sing all these classic left-wing movement songs the original mm -hmm. uh, no pasaran viva la quince brigade a las barricadas this is classic stuff if you had been singing this 70 years ago you would have brought revolutionary heroes out of their seats tell us about this experience of working on these songs this is another nap sessions recommendation for those who came after songs of resistance from the spanish civil war but tell us about that Valina. the way that i came to be involved with this is sort of a culmination of several years of doing the events that would happen for the veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade for Valb Alba. If you buy the album, you you're making a donation to that organization to keep that that learning anti-fascist training going. The first time I'd ever heard of them, uh, Bruce Barthol was the musical director. Bruce was the composer lyricist for 33 years Many for the San years, Francisco yeah. Mime Troupe. Yeah. Troop. But before that, he was with Country Joe and the Fish. So anyway, Bruce Barthol was musical director for these uh, reunions that would happen, these veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade reunions every year. He asked me and Michael and some other mime troopers if we would be part of uh, the entertainment for a show, you know, for the, an event. And that was 1999 or something that when that the first happened. And so that experience, because I I'm going to tell you, I didn't know anything about it. Like I had to read Hemingway in high school, but they didn't connect the dots for us or I didn't for me anyway, in terms of the Spanish Civil War and like for whom the bell tolls or something like that. The Abraham Lincoln Brigade are these people who saw this fascist power grab in Spain and they just felt like we can't sit back and watch this happen to the people. So uh, they became part of the international brigades. People from all over the world went to Spain to try to fight against Franco. And they were very much mistreated, the ones who survived and blacklisted, and they were called premature anti-fascists. Oh. So you got to time it just right when you're going to say you're against fascism. <laughs> and so these people were just, just incredible. They were so, so brave and risked everything to fight fascism. And I hadn't heard the story. I didn't know anything about it. So now I'm up on stage and I've learned these songs 
for the performance and we're singing them and they're beautiful. It's beautiful yeah, music. Very much so. The poetry, the music, the paintings from that time, gorgeous art from that. So singing and then having the people, they know these songs. They have so much meaning for them. And just the waves of of emotion coming from the audience, washing over us. It was so moving. And I was like, oh my gosh. And hearing the stories, it's part of the program. And I'm like, these people are my heroes. And so from that point on, every time I was asked, you know, if I could do uh, the in, part of the entertainment for these events, I said, yes. And I did it for like 15 years. And so there was like this, the Bay Area wing and then the New York wing. And so Barbez is a Brooklyn-based ensemble, and they're really kind of avant-garde, you know, a really cool uh, set of musicians. I was invited to come out and work with Barbez and together do the music for the New York contingents out there. And so I met them because we both had been hired for this gig, and they knew some of the songs already. And I knew them from being out here and we just worked these up and performed in the, and the event, like the space and everything was like bigger in New York, though. I love it at Freight and Salvage when we we're doing it there out, out here. It was like this big whoop-de-doo and it was really fun and worked really well. So then they were like, this was great. We want you guys to come back together. And then that time when we did that concert, uh, we recorded it. And so it's a live album. So that's that's how it came about. It was like over many years of doing these events and getting to know the story and the people and the music. That was a really great concert. It's epic. It really is. Doing the background for the interview, I kind of stumbled upon it and I thought, oh, I got to listen to this. It's really good. It's really, it, Thank you. it's inspiring. Anyway, a recommendation for that, for those who came after Songs of Resistance from the Spanish Civil War, Valina has a prominent part. The classic thing about talking to both Valina and her husband, Michael, is that they're kind of like a Renaissance family and that they have so many multiple skills. Here, we've just talked about your singing, and I want to talk about a course you teach called The Business of Showbiz. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something you've been doing on and off for years, apparently, or yep. a long time consistently. Yeah. You help actors with some of those realities of the trade. Those are some of the things I was never very good at. How do you get an agent, a manager? What's the difference? How does one market oneself? Tell us about uh, the business of showbiz and how you got it started and uh, what it's become. The, the impetus for the business of showbiz was when I first got started. I mean, my dad did Guys and Dolls in the, the military little theater. I didn't come from a performing arts industry family. You know, I didn't have an uncle Morty that could get me in the door or something <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? I didn't, mm -hmm. I just didn't have that. I didn't have any idea by the time I was in high school and going, I really want to do this professionally. And I had no idea how to get from where I was to where I wanted to be with that. How do, you know, how does someone go from doing school stuff to having a job doing it, getting paid to perform. I just was always like really unsure of how to go about things, but some things I kind of find out and that would lead to something. And then I'd find out a little bit more, but the impetus for the business of showbiz was I did get into like my first on-camera auditions 
and I didn't know how it goes. And I saw this woman who was walking around. She was carrying the sides, which sides are what it's called, the scene or script that you're working on in that context. In theater, we call it scripts. But so she's walking around with the sides and she's going over, she's acting it out and she's looking very confident, you know. And I went over to her and I asked her, I don't even remember what the question was now, but I asked her a question, you know, like, where did you get the script from and where, how do I sign? Do I sign in or whatever? And she just stopped and looked at me like, like I'm really going to tell you anything. And it was just like, Mm. <laughs> that really, you know, when you're nervous young person and you're, you go over to someone that's, that's more experienced and they pretty much, you know, slap you down. It was just kind of a devastating moment. But then at the same time, there was a part of me after I was like, what, you know, then it was like, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. It sh shouldn't be this hard. And it was like, then I decided if I figure any of this stuff out, I'm going to teach because it shouldn't be this mysterious and ooh, you know, and having to deal with people who are going to like lord it over you because you don't know and they do. So that was really the impetus of it. And you've been doing that how long now? <sighs> it was in the late 90s, I think, when mm -hmm. I taught my, wow. first, okay. my first class. But I haven't been doing it like all the time, Yeah. but I've been doing it for a while. When I first came out of grad school, my idea was at that point that maybe I would do a support group for actors. I think that was like the first idea. But what was happening is actors didn't want to be in a group where they're admitting any kind of insecurity in front of other actors. So basically, the only people who would call me up were people who really needed to be in psychotherapy, <laughs> you know, and that's not and I and I, that's not what I was doing. I wanted to do support. I had made a decision that I wasn't going into that area. So that was the first idea that didn't work at all. And then I was like, OK, I'm not going to try to do a support group. I'm going to do uh, workshops. So I've been doing them off and on for a long time. You also write a column for Theater Bay Area on advice business of showbiz. And a few years ago, you wrote mm -hmm. a column called Theater in a Messed Up World, mm -hmm. where you talked about why continue to pursue a career in theater when now more than ever, there's an urgent need to fight for the health of the planet. I believe this column is about seven years old, but this problem has not gone away. Talk about actors' place in the world and the power of activism and how you feel you can do something as an actor or a performer or a director? This question came up in a workshop that I, I've been teaching. The goal-setting piece of my larger Business of Showbiz workshop, the goal-setting part, I've been doing for Theater Bay Area's Atlas program, Advanced Training Program for Actors. So this question came up in the class where it's like, okay, we're, we're working on setting goals. And this woman basically asked me this question. She was like, I don't know if I even should be here. I don't know if it makes sense for me to be trying to pursue this because of all of these things that are going on in the world and on the planet. Is, is it stupid? Is it frivolous for me to be pursuing an acting career right now? So that's where this came from. And I did the best that I could in answering it in the class at the time on the fly. And then I contacted her and I said, listen, you know what? I think this is a big question that a lot of people have. And would it be all right with you? if I wrote about this. So she wrote down the question for me. Um, and then, and so that's what I was responding to. And it's like, my feeling is that artists 
express and reflect back what's going on in the world. If you've ever listened to a song, you're in a certain space. And as the kids say, you're feeling some kind of way. And then a song comes on that just really expresses what you weren't able to put into words. And there's something about hearing that that really makes you feel like you're not alone. And it just makes you feel better or it makes you feel like, oh, that's what was happening. And so the artist's role is, is really hard. It's like, it's this emotional labor of taking in what we're all taking in as humans, you know, taking it in and then finding a way to make something out of it that expresses a perspective about it. And generally the person who's experiencing that art then if it connects for them, because, you know, everything that somebody does, you don't necessarily connect with, but somebody else might, but, you know, if you, do, but you might not, but if it connects, a lot of times it's because it's like, yeah, that's how that I, I didn't know how to say that, or I didn't even realize that's how I felt. But now that you put, now that you put it that way, that's exactly how I feel, or it's a way of letting people in on a perspective that they weren't aware of that they didn't even know about and i think and i feel like in this at this time where there's just been this churning and shredding and pulling people rending people apart from each other and the art of really listening to somebody's experience that's different from your own and not just immediately like hearing a part of it and going and then just start yelling over them because that's not how you see it you know like the the art of really listening is such a, it's such a lost art. So I feel like we have a really important role in helping people see, hear, understand, express things that they either weren't able to say or didn't know about before and can close those gaps. That's actually, this brings me around to how I became interested in working with the Mime Troop in the first place, which was a show called Seeing Double. And it was about Israel-Palestine. And the show was calling for a two-state solution. And this was in 1989. That show, again, I didn't know anything about this. Whenever I would hear someone talk about, and there's a running gag in the show about this, but really, whenever someone would bring up the Middle East, people go, oh, it's complex. And then that's it. And then they just move on. I didn't know it's not taught in school unless it's grad school because it's too controversial. And when I saw that show, I was very moved and I learned about something that's big that's going on on the planet that I didn't know anything about. And I just felt like this is really amazing. And I would like to have an opportunity to do something like this at least once. That's really how I saw it. It's like, if I could maybe do something like that, just once, that would be so amazing. And that show that toured across the country, went to New York and played under bomb threats, you know, because there were people who really disagreed with the idea of, you know, Palestinians having anything. The leader of that faction that was in New York died while they, you know, while they were there, it just happened. And so whatever they were, pl- action they were planning against the troop um, didn't happen because they went to that person's um, memorial. And then they went to Israel, they went there and the play helped because they, and they played on both sides, both banks. 
And Israelis and Palestinians would see the show and say, I'm really glad I saw this, but I don't think you should do this show. I don't think you should do this again, but I'm really glad I saw it. And they both said that both of them said, you made the other side look too nice, which means if they're both complaining means you got it right. Yeah. Seeing double works. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they ended up people who never, ever, ever would have spoken to each other, talked to each other at those after those shows in a way that a rally or this or the other ways of expressing would not have resulted in these people talking to each other and kind of seeing each other as human. That really, in a lot of ways, answers the question about uh, why do this theater in a, in a messed up right. world? You've got it right there. We've got to continue on. We've got to continue to bring things out. And you're teaching now at Gateway High School in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Are you teaching drama? Mm-hmm. Did you want to be partly in schools again? or Because I was a teacher for 20 years, among other things. Did you teach drama? I taught drama. I still, what I'm doing after this is I'm coaching the Mendo High zoom improv club so i had something to do you know keep something going but tell us about gateway high and what you're teaching well gateway is a school that compared to most public schools it's it's small school meaning there's under 500 students in the whole school it's really raison d'etre is to create a, a diverse environment for racially ethnically gender fluidity wise but specifically also for people who learn in different ways. It's really the, the founding mothers were, were moms whose kids had some sort of a learning in a quote unquote regular schooling context would be considered a, a learning challenge. And they're like, well, they should be able to, to be in, in a school and succeed because they are bright. It's a public school, and but it's just very much about creating a a diverse, uh, inclusive environment. And so Victor Toman taught there before me. Mm -hmm. And so when he and his family decided to move to Maine, because his wife is from Maine, and they they decided to move there, he kind of made an announcement to his network that I'm part of, um, that this job was opening up. So I've heard of many job teaching job openings over the years. Why this one? Well, I had done a project with the Mime Troupe, the Robert Wood Johnson uh, project, which we had three teams, one going, it was like Ed Holmes and Bob Ernst who went into uh, Soledad prison and myself, uh, Mario Gonzalez that went to Golden Valley High and then we were trying to do a group with migrant workers, but migrant workers are too busy to be doing a theater workshop. So we had Wilma Bonet. I don't know if you remember that name, but she used to be in the, in the collective in the 80s. She went and was able to talk to a couple of people individually. And so from getting their story, the work that Ed and Bob did in the prison, getting their story, and they created a play. And then uh, Mario and I working with these students in Golden Valley High, and they created two plays. They were so awesome, which then we took the material and braided it together. Michael did this, braided it together, and then we could show them what we came up with from the work that they came up with. And so when we took this piece into the prison, it was just an amazing 
experience. And these guys, they had been sentenced to life in prison and they had been sentenced as adults when they were kids. So they had been in prison since they were 16 or 17 years old. And now when I was meeting them and when the mime trip was meeting them, they were in their late thirties and early forties. Just the story, I won't go into the whole, what the story was of the piece and everything was very moving to them, really resonated with them. And they were like, you have to go into the schools. And they, and just from that, from again, from them seeing that play and the, the part that they put in with the part with the kids that were like their age when they got put in jail, okay? Haven't been out since. There was something that just, they just started sharing all of these experiences they, that they had had and all the trauma that they, and that, that they had been through. And they had said, you know, if we had had some other way of expressing, because I asked them, what do you think, was there anything that could have made a difference for you in terms of the trajectory of your life? And they were saying, if we had had some other way of expressing what had happened to them, like one of the guys, he had been on the street since he was seven, his family blew up. And he was literally nobody to take care of him from the age of seven. So by the time he was 15, he was a big time drug dealer because that's who took him in a gang. But they were saying that, you know, just being able to deal with this in a different way than just sort of lashing out or whatever could have made a difference in their life. And then they were just like, you know, really, they were <laughs> it was like, yeah. like, you, you have to go into the schools, Ms. Brown, you have to go, you have to go into the schools. And I'm like, so I'm leaving going, I have to go into schools. I have to go into school. And so then a couple weeks later, this job opens up and I'm like, I think I'm supposed to apply for this. Yeah. And so I applied for it and I got it. What a story. And, and, you know, talk about following the muse and also following social realism there. You've been totally fascinating and it's, it's even hard to stop, but I got one more question I had to ask you apropos teens your son, Zachary, I asked Michael about this too. He's gotten some acting and modeling work. Uh, what's it like being a stage mom, Valina? Well, you know what? I'm, we're not, we're not stage parents because <laughs> he's not, he's not interested. He's really not interested in acting. It, mm -hmm. When he was a little, little tiny guy, because he was such a cutie pie and we have, you know, we have our agent. And so when we would come and visit our agent, he'd be there in the stroller and they're like, oh, he's so adorable which he was. And then they started sending him out for things. So he got to do print stuff for American baby and for gap and for the, like different things. And so when he was a baby toddler that he was in demand. And then by the time boys get to be like around seven, it's their, the clothes aren't as adorable anymore. They're just pants and t-shirts, mm -hmm. you know? And then he was old enough to go, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not that interested in this. Whereas as a toddler, they just, wherever you take them, you know, you put them in outfits and they're cute and they take the picture. <laughs> but then later he had the opportunity to audition for uh, a pilot for a television show and he auditioned for it and they loved him and cast him and they shot the pilot, but it wasn't, it wasn't picked up as a series, but he did fantastic. And if it had gone on, he would have been one of the three kids, the leads for it. But he's like, that show, that would have been so embarrassing. I don't, you know, I'm so glad, you know, that that didn't happen and stuff. And so like now he's, he's not it. So we're not, we're not stage parents because yeah. he's not. 
interested and you don't want to push somebody and like no. this is this is a hard field to go in you have to really be passionate and want it yeah, yeah. to you know so it's fine it's fine you have made a career in a variety of ways you've been actor singer director you write about the business of showbiz you've been a teacher michael has also done this it's it's very impressive to come around you're kind of a renaissance theater family so I think that's way cool. I want to thank you, Valina Brown, for being on Snap Sessions. Oh, thank you. I've had a chance now to talk to yourself, Michael, and Ellen Callis of the Mime Troupe. You know, it's a great group. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I'm hoping for is this coming summer, maybe you guys can get back out into the parks. And if not, as soon as possible. In the meantime, I'm recommending everybody listen to Tales of the Resistance and A Red Carol. Valina Brown, I thank you massively for being on us, with us in Snap Sessions. Thank you so much for having me. It's really fun talking to you. And just because he's human, he doesn't like a pistol to his head. Again, to our artist of the show, actress, singer, director, Valina Brown of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Our production team includes tech meister Marshall Brown, jack of all trades Ken Krause, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. We depend on the support of listeners like you to cover our monthly podcast and transcription service costs. Please join us as a Snap Session supporter. We have support levels from Little Snapper Snap. to Snappus Maximus. Snap. Thanks to all of our generous supporters.